you know, this is part of who I am and I'm not, it's not something that's going to just go away, but how am I going to, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to follow what God is asking me in this condition? Because God obviously isn't asking me to be non-autistic. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab on the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and I am back for season two. What is a season, you may be wondering? Well, a season is basically a batch of like 12 episodes that I pre-record. The reason why I do that is because I have no idea if I'll be able to get guests to say yes to an interview, um, at least on a weekly basis. And so I try to pre-record so that I can release regularly. So anyways, I am so excited for the interviews that I have to share with you this season. Um, While I was doing that, I also released my first YouTube video. So if you check out The Crab and the Cross on YouTube, you'll find um, I made a short video about the, uh, the five funniest stories in the Bible. So if you haven't watched that, check it out. I am coming out with another YouTube video soon. I had hoped to release a few more um, during the month of January, but I underestimated my um, ability to do so slash how long it takes to um, really edit a YouTube video. So anyways, all that to say, hi, welcome back, and thanks for listening. My guest today is Father Matthew Schneider. You might recognize him from his robust presence on Twitter. He's also a blogger and an author and a college professor. Uh, But one of the things that stands out about Father Matthew Schneider is that he's a priest with autism, and he's very open about that fact. Uh, In fact, he recently wrote a book that is a prayer guide for people with autism. So we chat about his diagnosis and how that affects his ministry and some of his insights into uh, what he calls autistic prayer. Uh, I love this conversation because it just shows the expansiveness of the church and God's creation and that there really isn't one mold or one model for holiness or prayer or even priesthood. One of the things I'm, I'm learning in my own life is that often the things that we think are the biggest barriers to God or to others are quite the opposite. And they're in fact the means or the bridge that God wants to use to connect us to himself and to other people. And Father Matthew Schneider is a great representation of that. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Father Matthew Schneider. Um, I'd love for you to show your support by obviously subscribing to the podcast. Um, Also subscribing to my YouTube channel. Um, Follow me on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I think those are the things. Um, In Rate and review in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back season two, and here is my conversation with Father Matthew Schneider. Father Matthew Schneider has been a priest with the Legionaries of Christ for nine years. He obtained his doctorate in moral theology from Regina Apostolorum in Rome. Two years after being ordained, he received an autism diagnosis. He has recently published a book called God Loves the Autistic Mind by Pauline Press, and he currently teaches theology at Belmont Abbey College. Father Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. So you mentioned that you were just at um, EWTN um, sharing about your book. What was that process like? So uh, when I published the book, so the book was published back in June, I sent out uh, uh, email failures to a bunch of different groups, you know, saying, hey, do you want a copy to review or anything like that? And and obviously, in, a, in the Catholic world, you include W10, EW10 in that. I sent it out like to a whole bunch, like our Sunday visitor, yeah. to you know everybody else. Say, hey, do you want a copy? Basically, to their book review department. And uh, a few months later, EW10 contacted me, and uh, I had arranged to do. I arranged to do two shows. One was uh, at home with Jim and Joy, which is kind of like a mom's daytime mm-hmm. show, where it's more of a casual conversation. Yeah. And that one, we recorded two episodes for them, which aired. The week we're recording this, which would be, they aired December 2nd, and, I mean, November 2nd and 3rd of 2022. And then the third one was their bookmark show, which is which is a much more kind of structured interview show okay. uh, where one of the ho- the hosts interviews uh, an author about the book that they recently wrote that the host had written. And I could tell you from that show, it's it's very interesting because the host comes in and he has a copy of the book and you could. And you probably can't see it on TV, but I can see it from how close I am. Right. That he's got a dog-eared and like highlighted mm-hmm. all these different points, and he's, <laughs> that he opens up the book and he, it's like, yes, he actually read it and and went through and and did all those his own notes for it, which made me think like, yes, he's going to ask some some serious questions. Right. Yeah. So what? I mean, how would you describe the book? Like, is it more about your personal journey, or is it more about um, you know how to minister to people with autism? So I think I think the kind of subtitle explains it. Prayer guide for those on the spectrum and those who love us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is really it briefly mentions my personal journey, but it's more about uh, autistic prayer in general. I even was concerned, hey, I might just be describing my own prayer, and mm-hmm. so I went forward when I started the book and interviewed about twenty five. Uh, autistic individuals and say, hey, like with a few questions, hey, what was your most profound moment of prayer? How would you describe prayer? Things like that. And a lot of those stories got into the book as well. So the book is really divided into two parts. The first third of it is kind of a systematic presentation of autistic prayer. Mm -hmm. And the second two thirds is 52 daily devotions, you know, where you'd have like a story, a Bible verse or reflection on that Bible verse type, type, uh, you know, daily devotions, like kind of following a similar structure you'd have in other books of daily devotions right. that are out there. Yeah. So you received your diagnosis a lot later in life. It seems to me that now people tend to get diagnosed sometime in school. You know, teachers tend to notice that maybe there's something that sets this child apart. Um, but for you, it was much later in life. Did you notice, uh, like when you were younger and a child when you were in school, did you notice that you didn't seem to... I don't know, be like everybody else. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't fully fit in. I think the biggest challenge here is that between the eighties and nineties when I was in school mm-hmm. uh, and the 2010s when I was diagnosed, the definition we use for autism drastically changed. And the, the most obvious thing that would have affected me being diagnosed was back then you, you needed to have an intellectual delay to be diagnosed oh, with autism. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and whereas now it's considered a common comorbid condition and and things. And they're also much stricter in other ways, too. That's just the most relevant for me because obviously somebody who's a professor who can right, you know, right. everything. <laughs> the, the intellectual delay part is probably not that strong in somebody who's, you know, got a doctoral degree and and, and, and such. And, and 
the and so you had to have an intellectual delight. And obviously, my my teachers look at my grades, and it's like I wasn't the best kid in class, but I was sure. usually top five in a class of twenty five. So it wasn't there wasn't any concern about my academics. Yeah. But just like my my coordination was always a struggle. Things like that. Like I remember. The, the class I came closest to failing in in all events elementary school was gym class the semester we had to learn to skip because I just couldn't get that as like really? a second grader. Like as much as I tried, I just, the coordination aspect, I, I was, I was very clumsy and that's a kind of, that is an autistic trait. Huh. Uh, I, I, uh, like I had horrendous handwriting. I remember I was taught, uh, one of, so one of my high, one of my elementary school teachers has become the superintendent for the local Catholic school board in the last 25 years, you know, yeah. 30 years or something. When, since he was my elementary school teacher and my sister was talking to him because my sister teaches in the Catholic schools okay. there. And, and he said, Oh yeah, he was just, he was, he was so clumsy. He was always tripping over the kids and the kids oh. picked on him because of it. But it was pretty clear from my perspective as a teacher that it wasn't intentional. He was just clumsy, you know, like, right, and right. that, so, <laughs> and, and, and I, I was, I was, I was in his class the first year he taught. So it's like, so oh he remembers gosh. that class. That's like his first year. And now he's the superintendent uh, of the school board. So. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. Cause I, I was a teacher and yeah, I will never forget my first year of students. Like, and partly because, so, I mean, I taught high school and when you're a high school theology teacher, um, oddly enough, like you are not necessarily on everybody's like, you know, positive side um and so, oh i can imagine <laughs> yeah well even 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 i get a bit of that here because so like i teach two of the some of the classes i teach are the required theology classes that everybody here at belmont abbey has to take yeah and belmont abbey is not is not like 100 percent catholic it's a very good catholic okay, school yeah. but because of where it's located in the carolinas the, the the student population is mixed and so you have a lot of students who really you know, wouldn't take the theology class if it wasn't a required class. So right. trying to get them motivated and things can be a challenge. I can imagine it's very similar to a high school theology teacher. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so did you enter the Legionnaires like after high school or did you go to college first? So I went to, to college for two years. I went to the local state school. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I went to the University of Calgary. Oh, I didn't uh, know you're Canadian. <laughs> yeah, so it's a pretty it's a pretty decent sized state school. It, when okay. I was there, it was about twenty thousand full time, five thousand part time students. So, you know, on the you know not not like the biggest university in the country, but relatively large. And I went there, did two years of computer engineering, and I really felt the call to the priesthood in my second year, uh, studying computer engineering. And that's and then I entered the summer after that, that second year. So I was, I was 19 when I entered in the summer. So. Okay. And had you known your religious community like growing up or did you encounter them in college? I really encountered them through people who were involved in like kind of the lay branch, of, which is called Regnum Christi, okay. which is kind of like related to Legion as like lay people and things. The, the exact relationship is a little complicated for, for this, this podcast, but I knew a bunch of people who were involved in Random Christie, uh -huh. and that made me think about the Legion as a possibility when I felt the call to the priesthood. Okay. I went to visit. I kind of fell in love, you know, kind of that in that first weekend visit, I went yeah. to the Legion. And I tried, you know, I talked to one or two other communities, and I visit, I did, like, the, the Austin Vocation Weekend, and it just felt that that was where God was leading me. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I went and tried out, you know, discern longer for the summer yeah. or things like that. So, yeah. 
And so for, for them, like, what is their formation process like? I don't, you know, I kind of know the Diocesan side. I kind of know people who've done religious life. But re- it seems like the Legionaries is kind of this, it's not quite religious life in the sense that, like, you know, you live in community, uh, like in a monastery or something, right? Well, well, it is religious life in the sense that we live in community generally. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm currently a slightly an exception because I am teaching this year at Belmont Abbey, and we do not have a community here in the Charlotte area. Oh, okay. But uh, it's not, it's not a monastery in the sense that we, we like in a monastery, you often have a vow of stability where you're going to be in this monastery for life. Right. Whereas, whereas for a lot of the other more apostolic related religious communities, think of like the Jesuits or to an extent the Dominicans or a lot of kind of the other clerical ones that you talk about. You know, uh, Father uh, Father Gallagher, the Oblates of Blessed Virgin, or things like that. You'll have a community, but you're kind of you tend to move around between communities in the same in the same province. And a province is just it's kind of like a diocese. You have like a provincial who's like the bishop who can send you around and things. So like, I up until this year, I've always lived in community in a literary community. Okay. Uh, really, you know, ninety five ninety percent of the time, ninety percent of the night. So. I, and I've lived in like community we had in Detroit, one we had in Indiana, one we had in Connecticut, one we had in New York, in Philadelphia, in Washington D.C. Oh, area. Okay. So I've been I've been around different locations, living in a community here and there. But that idea of living in a is is that we do live in a community in that sense. For us, for formation, it's relatively similar to a lot of others. But what we do is so we do we start off with two years in novitiate, which is really learning to pray, learning the charism of the community, which for us is really, you know, a devotion to the Sacred Heart, devotion to Christ the King, mm-hmm. uh, that Christ centered this, and then also uh, a, de- a mission to go and form apostles to make people who are evangelizers, lay leaders in the church and things like that. And then and then after that, we when I was, we did like, a, so we did one more year, which got us like an associate's degree in general humanities, then to do two more, two more years after that to get a bachelor's in philosophy, then for us, we do about three years, generally about three years out in the field, kind of working as a brother, living in a community out in the field and working as a brother somehow. I did that out in Detroit and Indiana. I ended up doing four years. The standard was three, but okay. for various reasons, I ended up doing four. And then we, uh, and then I went to Rome to study theology for three years, and I was ordained. Uh, that was kind of my path. You know, some leaders do like a master's degree in philosophy first. Some mm-hmm. do a few little different things here and there. But the general path is that for the legionaries uh, that we do like an associate's degree in humanities, move that from from associates to do a bachelor's in philosophy, and then do a, a theology degree, which is in the U.S. equivalent to an MDiv, the Master of Divinity, which is a standard priest degree here. In Rome, they call it slightly different, but yeah. <laughs> it's just that 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 the American and and Roman degrees are equivalent, but have different names. Gotcha. Okay. So I've heard people say that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Um, But sometimes it does seem that persons with autism might be more independent or, you know, kind of have their own particular way of doing things. Like for you, obviously you didn't have the diagnosis yet, but for you, did you find it challenging to live in community with so many other people? In a sense, sometimes yes, but not not overwhelmingly. I think I think the thing is, it's just like it's just like living with anyone else, you know, just like you live in your family, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 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 yeah, you, you 
you make slight accommodations here and there to, uh, to different members of the family and things. I did not find it super difficult. Some autistics would find it difficult. Others would find it actually uh, really good because oftentimes the community would have a very structured schedule, a very mm. structured way of acting, which could often be helpful for some autistics. So it's so it just varies. And I yeah. think the reason we go back, going back to your, your first comment there, the reason we say if you've met one autistic, you've met one autistic, is how much that autism is is a way is a difference in how our brain is structured. But within that difference, there's a whole there's a wide spectrum of differences. And the diagnostic criteria, you have to have a certain number of checks here and a certain number of checks here, but it's not like you have to have all 10 here and all 10 here. Right. It's like you have to have at least six of these 10, at least six of these 10. I don't remember the exact numbers. I have to go and check, but yeah. something like that. And so you can have two autistic people who have, who check almost like opposite sets of boxes mm-hmm. there among, among those, those differences. And that's really an important aspect to understand why you might have one autistic person who just is like, like they 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 love people you know grabbing them hugging them super tight and the other one is like don't touch me mm, like, like, yeah. and and that's and both those are sensory differences but sensory differences going in the opposite direction interesting yeah so you know we mentioned that you got diagnosed into your you know adult life you're already ordained a priest um how did that even come about because obviously you were getting along with your, you know, fellow priests and you were, you know, being successful in your academics, like what even brought you to that diagnosis? So my first year I was ordained a priest. I was kind of assigned to be a, a chaplain to a K through 12 school, pretty normal priestly assignment, nothing too exciting. And it was supposed to be a three-year assignment. But after the first year, they're kind of like, this isn't working out. You're not really reading the, the, the social science little kids. Maybe you have Asperger's. They said, you know, who, and that who was said that? Fr- your community or someone from the school, the the principal at the school, basically. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, it just doesn't work out and things like that. And, and he was, the, he was the first one to suggest maybe you have Asperger's. I thought about it a few times when I heard it, like in the medium, like that's kind of sounds like me, but I hadn't really got given it much thought before right. then. Yeah. And, and so a little bit afterwards, that's when I started, like, I, you know, I started working kind of more behind the scenes for the community. And then I also started uh, looking at what kind of, uh, how that could be, uh, how I could, uh, looking for, looking at possibly getting diagnosed and went to a psychologist and worked through it and things. So that, that's where, it, that's where it happened. And we, right around then, so this was 2014, uh, Right around then was when the term Asperger's actually got removed from the diagnostic criteria because you have, if you follow psychology, they have what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is how you define different conditions, different psychological conditions. And up until the, in the DSM-4, which was, I think it was 2013, 2014, they had a separate diagnosis of Asperger's and autism, and then they just combined them because really the distinction was really not that much. The basic distinction was, if you were a kid who had a verbal delay, you'd get autism. If you're a kid who didn't have a verbal delay, you'd get Asperger's diagnosis. Oh, but, okay. but that's that's just as they as they had used that for a bit, they're like, that is one of the things about it, but it doesn't make a whole different diagnostic category. Okay. It, it is one of the distinctions here. It is one of the symptoms. Like a verbal delay is one of the ten the checkmark symptoms, right? right? Like I did not really have that, at least as far as I understand. My mom never said like, oh, I I, I took a long time to speak. I and I'm not but 
that is a symptom that a lot of autistics has where they don't they don't really speak they don't they're they're significantly delayed in that uh in their speech when they're a little kid like you know by their you know they're they're four before they first say the first sentence and things. Yeah. whereas most other kids it's like that you know they're they're two or three and they're and they're you know my my nephew and he's two or three he's like he goes up you know grandma can we have blueberries from the freezer and things like that? Like <laughs> yeah. normal, normal things that a two or three year old is going to ask for, right. you know, but using proper full sentences to ask for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and knowing my mom and, and knowing that it, my mom, unless he says, please and thank you, my mom's not going to give him the blueberries. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So getting the diagnosis, was it, uh, I mean, did it have an effect on you? Was it a relief? Were you sort of you know, uncomfortable with it? Like, what was your reaction? For me, it was kind of like two stages. When I first was leaving the psychologist on my way home, it was kind of uh, like, oh my goodness, like, is this a disaster and things? But then as I read up on it, as I started to go through it, as I asked the people in the community about certain things, Mm -hmm. it really started to make me think, okay, now I understand this about myself. and, And now I need to go forward with this. I can't, you know, this is part of who I am and I'm not, it's not something that's going to just go away, but how am I going to, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to follow what God is asking me in this condition? Because God obviously isn't asking me to be (laughs) non-autistic in that regard. So, so what, and so that's, and so I, I, it was kind of a relief after that and it was helpful, you know, to, to understand that. And that really, the same time that kind of research led me to my book because I was like, wait a second, we have autism and relationships, autism and this, autism and mm. anxiety, autism and autism and, uh, you know, social interaction, all these different autism in this books. And there's no like autism and prayer, mm, autism yeah. and the spiritual life. Yeah, like no, that. Right. <laughs> and, and I kept hoping somebody's got to write this book. Somebody's got to write this book. And then after a while, hoping somebody would write it, when nobody does, I'm like, well, I'm a priest. I'm, <laughs> at the time, I was doing I was doing what's called a license in, in theology at Sacred Heart in Detroit, which is kind of like between a master's and a doctoral thesis, because okay. the path when you go through is a little different for moving to a doctoral thesis if you if you do the ecclesiastical route rather than the standard American route. But anyway, so I was doing that through Sacred Heart in Detroit, and I said, well, I am, you know, doing graduate theology work. Mm-hmm. I'm a priest, and I'm autistic, and I've read you know, this whole bookshelf on, on autism by this point, well, I guess I might be the one who's called to write that book if nobody else is writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you consider yourself to be someone who like, did you enjoy writing? Like, would you have thought of yourself as, as a good writer? Yeah, I'm, I'm reasonably good. I think a lo- one thing that's true for a lot of autistics and I think it's true for me as well is often we're better at expressing ourselves in written form than in uh, spoken form, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, yeah. Uh, and, and so because sometimes things like our facial expressions, intonation were different than others and, and it, and it gets complicated. So I had been writing, I had been blogging for a while. Okay. I started, I actually started blogging cause like, so like I said, I was working in youth ministry for, well, I didn't say youth ministry. So I was working as a brother for four years. I was working in youth ministry yeah. towards the end of those four years. I started writing some of our youth ministry materials for that the Legion used and things. And as I went to Rome to study theology, I still had ideas about youth ministry and I wanted to kind of share them. So I started writing a blog back then that was mainly on youth ministry ideas, but then slowly transformed into a whole other groups of topics. But that's, I've been writing 
pretty regularly for, you know, for now over a decade uh, with blogs okay. and different websites. Yeah. Things. So. Okay. See, so, yeah, so I had a bit of a background in it. Um, so yeah, I had, I had been writing, I write a lot, like lot on, especially on Twitter. I have like 64,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're going to get so, to that later. So, so I do write, I do write that kind of thing. And it actually, that actually started when I was starting the blog and I'm like, well, nobody's reading this. How can I get people to read mm. it? And it's like, well, you got to put it on Facebook and Twitter. And I had mm. not, I had not created a Facebook and Twitter account yet. And this, even though it was like 2011, but yeah. then I did. <laughs> yeah. Did you find that members of your community <laughs> treated you differently once they heard the diagnosis? Like, were they either more careful around you or were they more exclusionary? Like, was there any effect on your, you know, those close to you? I think, I think at times, uh, the, uh, I, there were things that were a little clearer in that regard. Uh, I think sometimes when I ask for certain kind of accommodations, like I don't need a ton in the community. I know that like one of the things I ask for is just don't do these things where, I don't know, it's common sometimes among guys where we just kind of like, you lead somebody down a garden path and, and with something fictional. Right. And that's, that's a common kind of guy like, bro. Yeah. Kind of thing. But uh, I said, Hey, please don't do that because I'll, I'm, I want to be able to drop down my guard when I'm at home and not have to be thinking about that because that, that is, that's a lot more effort for me to think about than it is for the average person. So. Wait, I think I'm confused. What, what exactly do you mean? So, so I don't know. It's sometimes a lot of times people will say like, uh, I'll give you an example. One of the lead attorneys, I already know this, but he 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 jokes about this. So he's from Australia, uh -huh. and he'll and and he'll have fun uh, trying to convince people that there's carnivorous kangaroos, and he he'll tell you all oh. these stories about <laughs> carnivorous kangaroos, and 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 people are led down this path thinking it, and then after like five ten minutes, you're like, wait a second, mm. <laughs> like kangaroos are are herbivorous, and and it's like a a big joke for everybody around him, and like other people around him enjoy like watching or trying to convince people because okay. it's kind of funny at the and and because being autistic i'm not able to pick up on that as much I see. In, a, in a and so i'm especially in a community I'm, I'm like hey please don't like please don't be be playing these kind of games on me because right. it just it bothers me and i don't want to have to be like constantly worrying about that okay no that makes that makes a lot of sense um yeah so <laughs> So then, talk so yeah, if you ever if you ever meet an Australian lead attorney tries to give you about carnivorous kangaroos, yeah, it's, it's a joke. Well, <laughs> well have you um, have you ever listened to um, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World podcast? Oh, definitely. I it's there's like two or three podcasts I listen to almost every episode, and it's one of them. Yeah, uh, it's it's probably one of my favorite. It's probably my favorite Catholic podcast. Yeah, one of the things. One of the things I don't know if if you run into this, but I run into some Catholic podcasts is it, the, the ones that are built for people who are the average person in the pew sometimes for me at least it's like i already know this yeah and, yeah and it's like it's not whereas i think he he taking a look at all these different interesting topics he really goes into areas that i think are helpful for anyone for you, mm -hmm. you know whether you're a standard catholic who's in the pew like you know my mom or my sister or something or somebody like me who has doctoral doctoral right. degrees and all these studies uh, because I never thought about, you know, those, or I didn't think about them as in depth. You know, I did think about what what happens if we if we discover aliens. But right. Jimmy Aiken goes much deeper than I did in my in my brief study of that before before oh, yeah. listening to his podcast. No, he's great. But I and, I and I brought him up though because he does the um the April Fools episodes every year where 
you listen to it and you think it's a legit episode. And he actually, he did one about, I think, I don't know if it was kangaroos, but it was some sort of Australian. It was, it was drop bears, drop which are bears. like, uh, like <laughs> da- dangerous, dangerous uh, koalas of some yeah, form. I'm was. not sure exactly what the, the how they're, I don't remember exactly how they were dangerous, but. Yeah. Yeah. So did, I mean, did that bother, I mean, it kind of bothered me, honestly, because I, I thought this was like, this is so interesting. And then you get to the end and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> but I don't know. What yeah. Was- well, that, 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 that's, that's, that's just the reality, but yeah. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, he's great. And I, yeah, actually I got to interview him. Um, he's one of my earlier episodes. So yeah, we talked about like psychics and, um, obviously aliens. Um, but he's so interesting cause he like, yeah, he's a devout Catholic. He knows, you know, scripture tradition up and down, but he's also like pursuing all these other things. Like he's getting, training in parapsychology which is i don't know if there's any other devout catholic out there who's doing something like that well i think i think a few of them he's actually talked to i if i remember correctly he did an episode on like remote viewing which is yeah. kind of the idea that that through, through through some kind of psychic natural psychic phenomenon you could see things elsewhere in the world or kind of some kind of impression of things elsewhere in the world and some of the people doing that were devout Catholics, I think. Oh, I don't really? remember all the details. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, he, he had an ep- like he's had a number of episodes on uh, these psychic spying programs. Yeah. And I, and I, and and you know, and it, if it is kind of understood as a natural phenomenon, a weak natural sense, then yes, it's it's ethical for Catholics to use their weak natural senses, even if it's hard for us to use, even if it's hard for us to use it. Like all of us have a sense of smell, but our sense of smell is not as discerning as our sense of sight. Right. Right. Like, like even the person who has the best smell, uh, you know, the person who's like this wine sommelier or something, Mm -hmm. their, their sense of smell is not going to be as precise as their sense of sight, you know, whereas maybe the dog, a pet dog, Mm -hmm. their sense of smell might be more, more sensitive than their sense of right. sight. And that's why we get, that's why you train dogs to like sniff, sniff out bombs at the airport or, or yeah, sniff yeah. out truffles in the ground to find, to find truffles to sell at like expensive restaurants. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I don't know. I, I want, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about the whole psychic thing, but I definitely like attempt to use psychic powers every time I'm like driving. I'm like, there's a green light, stay green, stay green, stay green. You know, it's, it's not actually psychic, but that's sort of in my mind. I'm like, Okay, maybe if I concentrate hard enough, I can, you know, control the traffic light. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I don't know all the the things, but I do think that there's a distinction there. If you're because obviously, if you think, okay, I'm I'm invoking some kind of demon or some kind of false god to give me the psychic powers, right. that's that's immoral, right? Right. But if it's just like I have some kind of natural ability that's weak that's not able to perceive that well, and I try and work on it, I might be able to perceive it a little better. That's not immoral. Just like, you know, our sense of smell is weak. And if somebody is to like say, hey, I'm going to work on my sense of smell so I can get better at like discerning different types of mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly moral thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got your doctorate in moral theology. What was your concentration? Like, what did you do a thesis on? So my my thesis started as uh, the idea of genetic privacy and what the church can teach about that. But then as I researched the thesis, it ended up being more general informational privacy. So that would apply both to a genetic privacy, like, hey, your boss wants to ask you for a genetic test when you uh, when you apply to start a new job or a lot of informational technology like, hey, 
what what is Zoom collecting about our our our, our podcast yeah. recording right now? Yeah. Or what's Facebook collecting about my posts on Facebook? And what's Google collecting about all those things? And what's the NSA collecting? And all those kind of all those kind of data privacy uh, those data privacy aspects as well. So that's it's really more principles of informational privacy in general. Okay. Um, what I hope to do in the next year or two is to take uh, one of the, some of the things I, I had hoped to do in the doctoral thesis more an application add them in and, and publish it as a kind of more comprehensive work. I kind of stopped it kind of with a few brief mentions of the application without going in depth because it was already uh, on the long side for our doctoral thesis. And I didn't, I wanted to get yeah. the doctoral thesis, you know, and it didn't, there was no need to make it an extra hundred pages. Right. So that's interesting because that's, um, you know, I mean, obviously there's the issue of privacy that's, that's been around, since human beings interact with each other, but this yeah. informational privacy is definitely a you know a symptom of the technological world. So when you were writing that, were you what kind of resources were you using? Like were you trying to just apply like what past theologians had said about general privacy, or were you looking more at like you know scientific and like you know statistical data? So the thing is that the uh, the the church and theologians hadn't said much about privacy itself. They'd said much about a lot about things like keeping secrets and mm -hmm. the seal of the confessional, mm -hmm. and and the informational privacy at least. And then I also did a lot of secular thinkers looking at them and what we could take from them. And then even in the secular, there's also like the legal and the U.S. jurisprudence. Uh, starting with like even the Fourth Amendment, which is not the one that people, <laughs> not one that people memorize a lot, but it's basically the unreasonable searches and seizures yeah. uh, that uh, you know that that amendment, and uh, because the idea is that you know you have a certain privacy in your home, and there's not reasonable for the government to intrude to unreasonably search and seize, but at the same time. If the police have enough evidence to suspect that you probably murdered somebody and kept evidence in your bedroom, they can break into your bedroom. They can get a court order for a, you know, for a uh, search warrant and break into your bedroom. They can't if they do that without without a search warrant. You can sue them and get lots and lots of money from them. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> that that the uh, the you know in that sense of like a reasonable degree of privacy and and I think that that's that that's kind of that's kind of the background I went with. Uh, you can look at other backgrounds as well, but I tried to do from the two perspectives, from the moral, the from the kind of moral theology related principles like secrets mm -hmm. and from the secular thought and what can be appropriate in Catholic theology and how when we appropriate that, what, what can we add to it? Because I think a lot of times it's good, but it still has a very kind of what I would call a thin vision of human beings. Yeah. Uh, one of the thinkers I, I focused most on was Alan Weston. And Alan Weston is a legal theorist. He's basically a philosopher because he's uh, his legal theory is like what laws should we have and why should we have such laws, which is really almost more of a philosophy than legal theory. But at the same time, he is a legal theorist and his and his understanding of the human person is a legal understanding of a personhood in U.S. law, right. which is not completely wrong, but is not as deep as talking about, you know, the person who's creating the image and likeness of God, body and soul, composite, things like that, that we, that we would think of in a Catholic theology. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean, so after like nine 11, you know, the, the government definitely increased its, its reach on, you know, the human, the American population. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the Patriot Act and stuff like that. Like, 
and, and like the justification was, okay, well, we just had this deadly, horrible terrorist attack. We need to be able to prevent something like that in the future. Like, do you think that was a sufficient justification to then, you know, basically be able to tap into every single American citizen's like phone records and stuff? Well, the, the interesting thing is, um, and having read a lot of the secular thought on this, it's a really interesting, uh, I think, uh, Grant, uh, Glenn Greenwald's book, uh, oh, Nowhere yeah. to Hide, which is, which is, uh, he's, it's, uh, it's basically, uh, it's, it's a more or less, it's kind of a, a study of that and kind of a biography of Edward Snowden. It's, uh, but mm-hmm. he notes that based on public records, like some of the provisions, like there was a sneak and peek provision where they could look, they could get a warrant to look without asking, without notifying the person they were looking at their electronic things. And they justified this based on terrorism, but then you look at the uses for it, and like one percent was terrorism, and ninety-nine percent was like, like made, up, and like eighty percent was drug, tr- drug things. And, oh, and like, yeah. if you want, if you're going to use this this provision, eighty percent for drug things, justify it that way to the populace. Don't 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 trick us, you know. Right, right. Or things like, like certain kind of uh, like visa warrants. It was like, uh, in twenty years, it had a of you know 10,000 had a grand total of like three that were that were rejected by the courts and like by the judge but all three of those they were just they were later accepted after revision so it's like so it's like yes we need we need to have a, a judge who there for for a warrant and things but there needs to be some kind of accountability in that regard because if you have 99.9% approval of of a certain kind of motion in court like that, either the the Justice Department has some kind of really good internal thing that doesn't that prevents them from ever using it in unjustified ways or ever proposing unjustified ways, or the judges aren't being strict enough on how they're checking those those things in that regard. So those right. those kind of questions get in there. You know, how much was justified for one use but actually used for another? Right. Because yeah. because we have we you should be transparent in a way about how you justify how you justify something to the people. Like if you want to justify this provision to prevent drug trafficking, ex- justify it that way. to People don't say it's going to be for terrorism. Then like half a percent, one yeah. percent is terrorism and 80 percent is drug trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, also, too, I mean, if if they start using it more for drug trafficking, then they're going to start dedicating more resources towards that, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but that could mean that resources are diverted from, from, you know, terrorist investigations and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, like we're, we're not even like solving the problem that we set out to solve in the first place. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, and there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of issues in that, in how it's done. Because because my definition of privacy would be a rational degree of control over information in that about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because because we do need some kind of solitude, some kind of you know uh, like private information in order to achieve human flourishing. Because if you're if you're never private, it, it's it, it it's contrary to human flourishing. Now, privacy in itself does not achieve human flourishing. It allows you to have. It allows you to have that kind of solitude, which is a deeper, deeper sense of privacy uh, of of how you live, that that is important for human flourishing. So that's the whole question there, and and so with that you have you have a whole bunch of questions about uh, about about those type of provisions and how they work and are they really do they really give people a rational degree of control or are they kind of 
an oppression by the government, right? right. You know, like I'm in that sense because there is there are there are legitimate concerns about the overreach of those of a lot of those things at the NSA and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I and I do think that there is some some real issues there. I'm not going to say everything the you know everybody who complains about the NSA is always right either because right, sure. you know we, there is there is a sense that like you do want to have the ability for the police to have a search warrant of almost anything if 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 need be, right? But you don't want it to be you don't want those search warrants to, warrants to be granted too easily. Right. You don't want to just say a policeman goes up to a judge and says like uh, I think this guy killed this person. Why? I just think so. And then the the judge gives them gives them a search warrant. You know, it's like okay, we have this these three pieces of evidence that are probable that this person killed this person. It's not enough to convince them or arrest them, right. but can we search their house now because we have these three or four pieces of evidence that point towards them being the uh, being a murderer of this other person, right? Yeah. Well, it brings up something interesting, too, because on the one side you have, okay, like the government or these tech companies like, you know, spying on us or, or just like being able to tap into our information. Um, but then on the, kind of a similar thing is you have ordinary people who are leaking information, you know, and, and you mentioned Edward Snowden, like that, that that's like an interesting tension because on the one hand, he's saying, well, it's unjustified that they were, you know, buying on us to this degree, but then you could also say, well, maybe it was unjustified that you are then leaking this like classified information to the public, you know, like what's your take on that? What's your take on, on him leaking information or other people leaking things to the public? Well, there, there's obviously that, that obviously gets into a very complicated situation where you have <laughs> yeah. to, yeah, a lot of times, a lot of times there's, there's prudential principles we can apply and then it's hard for us to, to know the exact circumstances of of each individual in that sense, because right. I don't think like there's, there's not a kind of universal judgment that every person who leaks government information is bad or every person who leaks government information is, is good. Right. Yeah. In that sense, like, and, and I do think there's differences in how things are like historical. Like I think, um, what was it? There was, there was some leak where it was like revealing these like locations of soldiers almost, almost mm. in real time mm. somewhere else in the world. And it's like, well, you're putting, you're putting those people's lives at super high risk by doing that. Right. Now, if you were, if you had leaked, okay, here's where these soldiers were like a year ago, that would have been much, it would have been much easier to justify because soldiers probably moved in a year. Right. <laughs> and yeah. things. So, so it's not a, it's not a, it's, you're not putting their lives at risk. So there are a whole bunch of prudential points there. Uh, I, I think that they're, the whole Edward Snowden thing gets really complicated and how much he leaked and the way he, and things like that. Like, because obviously he's going to, he's going to, there's, there is something where a lot of this stuff seemed unjustified, but how careful was he to make sure he's not putting other things at risk? Right. Right. So, yeah. So like, and even how you, like how you leak it, do you, like if there's innocent people, do you block their names out of things, yeah. right? Because like you go, like if you go, if you go to a freedom of information request with the government or something, right? Uh, they'll often get it back with some blacked out things where it might be like uh, a secret, a secret, a secret spy program 
or the name of a victim right. of some crime who who's who's not who, who's who's not really relevant for the for the information you're looking for and things and we want to keep the the victim anonymous so you know people aren't harassing the victim or something right yeah well i mean it also just makes me think of um you know our definition of lying because i think one of the definitions of of lying is that you know well they'll they'll say that like the person has to have some kind of right to the to the truth that it's some moral theologians say like it's okay to withhold information from somebody who doesn't have a right to know that information. And so obviously, you know, like you yeah. mentioned, like when, when there's a, a victim of a crime, like the public doesn't have a right to know the name and the details of that person that you could say they have a right to know that this, this situation occurred so that they can be cautious. Yeah. Well, and, and we have a right to know much more of the perpetrator. Like, let's say, mm-hmm. let's say there's a rape. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have that this guy raped three women. Okay, well, I want to know if he's living on my street. I think right. the most a lot of people would. Right. Right. And and whereas like these women didn't do anything to have kind of the you know some of the negative stereotypes that might go along with that mm-hmm. on them in society. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this guy he made choices that make us the rest of us think, okay, he is much higher risk for all these different things in society. And so, you know, whether it's working on a street or like, let's say, let's say I, I run a, I run a, uh, after school, I run a program for troubled teenagers, you know, like I'm yeah. a social services program. He comes in and I run a background check. I'm like, sorry, yeah. I'm not giving you the job based on the background check. Right. It don't matter how, how good you looked elsewhere mm-hmm. on the rest of the job interview. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that was interesting. I want to jump back quickly to, to your book, because I do want to ask you, you know, you mentioned you have this like prayer guide for, for per- persons with autism. How would you say that an autistic person interacts with God differently than, than somebody without autism or like what, what makes their prayer life or their prayer experience unique? Well, I think there's a number of different aspects of how of how our prayer experience is unique. I think some of the ones that are just like most obvious is so one of the, the stereotypical things of autism is called stimming, and stimming is really some kind of repetitive behavior motion of your body, which is meant to calm you or meant to regulate your emotions and your sensory experience. And so a lot of times we look at prayer and the and the idea is like be still and, and know that I have God, like in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. But also for an autistic person, being still might actually be being in motion, doing some kind of repetitive stim, like rocking back and forth a rocket chair or flapping their hand, because yeah. that really brings their soul, brings their mind to that kind of to be ready for that, to be ready for for the um, for uh, what what we're talking about here in the in 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 the, the the openness in our mind to pray to speak with God, for example. Another thing is just how we will tend to, we can often struggle a little more in the beginning because we have issues with theory of mind, which is basically, theory of mind is basically like how I think of what you're thinking, right? So if we're, if we're talking with two friends, you look at them in the face and you're saying, oh, their their eyes move like this, their head moves like this, and you're grasping a little bit of what they're thinking, right? Yeah, at least yeah. that's that's normally how, how things work. And, and so I think in our own lives, we can have that challenge with how we're thinking, how we're, all those types of things, right? And 
and the reality is that that can be a struggle at the beginning when we start to pray. But at the same time, it, because we don't we don't have that filter that kind of automatically does that like a lot of people do. I do it somewhat consciously. Like if I'm talking to someone, I'm very consciously paying attention to their facial expression and right. and things like that much more than I understand other people are. Because I've talked to a few people who are not autistic and they're yeah. like, that's a totally different experience from what I experience because mm. I just do that automatically. Right, right. But, uh, the 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 reality is that that's also with God because God's a person we talk to Him and then also but I think as we get further along that can actually be a benefit because that that kind of th- thought process automatic thought process creates a filter creates a barrier between me and God and if we just don't have that barrier we can go further we can go more directly towards God in that sense so. I think that that is another aspect of how our artistic prayer is different. I think there's a few other aspects as well, just how we often have a certain attachment to a certain object, like a lot of times like a certain statue or a certain icon will really be a super important thing for an artistic person to really lead them to prayer. Uh, And that can be a case for other people, but I think it's much more common among autistics. So, Yeah. Well, what you were saying about how, you know, the typical person is just automatically like trying to, gauge another person from them like their reaction so when you're applying that to prayer do you mean that for a lot of autistic people they aren't stuck on the question of like what is God thinking about me or what is God thinking about what I'm saying like what can you elaborate more on what you mean by that so so we don't we it takes a little more to think through that because like prayer when we first started your kind of first level of prayer is you know, when I was five, I, mom, mom would say, "Okay, let's let's pray the Our Father, right?" right and we all right. we all go, "Our Father, art in heaven," and that's and that's the first level of prayer, but that's not really like the deeper level of prayer sure. by any stretch, <laughs> right? And, and once you get beyond that, we get to kind of a personal dialogue with God in some way, where we communicate either with words or with uh, like wordless thoughts that we can't quite narrow down into into good English words or anything. And and as we're doing that there's a lot of thinking about, okay, what is God thinking about me? How does God think? What is God, what is God thinking about my situation? How, Mm. and things like that. And, and our tendency is to have, is to struggle a lot with trying to understand what other people are thinking about us, what other people are thinking. And that comes in into prayer as well. So I think that that's really the, that can be a struggle near the beginning of prayer. Yeah. But are you saying like the autistic person doesn't, have as many of those conscious thoughts about what is God thinking about me, or you think they, they do it to a greater degree? Well, the thing is that a lot of, a lot of non-autistic people would have kind of almost a subconscious automatic aspect of yeah. that, that we have yeah, to yeah, do yeah, much yeah. more consciously. Okay. Uh, and it can be my, and our conscious mind is always slower than our subconscious mind, right? Like if I had to think every time I had to breathe, mm-hmm. I, I might, I might, I might actually, I might suffocate, right? right? Because, because my conscious mind is constantly keeping my heart pumping, my breath going back and forth, right? Yeah. And, and sure, I can consciously control my breath, but I don't usually do that, right? Very few people are, do that on, you know, most of the day. You can't do it while you sleep, at least, and then, right? you know, like if I'm doing a certain exercise, yes, I'll control my breath. Or I'm, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I, I learned to swim 25 meters straight underwater. And, you know, that took a lot of like breath practice where right, I was like, right, right. you know, learn to hold my breath longer and longer and, and things like that. So, so those kind of aspects we have, we have the, that training for those things, but our, so 
a lot of people, because it's a subconscious, it's faster in that regard and learning, understanding what God's thinking about them, understanding how, yeah. how God's perspective on them is. Whereas for us, because it's much more, much less subconscious, we have to think through it and, and it ends up being slower because yeah. of that. But then, because you had said, well, maybe because of, because there's not that constant, like, subconscious thought going on that the autistic person is able to go deeper in prayer. Yeah. So once, once you get to a certain point in prayer, I would say you, you've kind of gotten over that challenge. Right. And then, and then, and then as you get over that challenge, you have kind of that communication with God and that communication with God, as you get over that challenge tends to be for autistic and non-autistic people tends to be, less expressible in words yeah where it's more a conceptual conversation and and the words seem seem inadequate more often right. more often than and when you get to kind of that point around there is that same kind of subconscious thought that an that a non-artistic person would have can actually become an obstacle because mm-hmm. we're constantly thinking about it instead of just communicating with god instead mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of a filter between us and god a subconscious filter Right. Whereas we don't have that subconscious filter, so we're able to communicate much more directly. And I think God, in his way, will communicate to each person according to their their neurology. Just like when I hear God's voice, you know, it's going to be in English. And when my friend who's from Mexico hears God's voice, he hears it in Spanish. Or my right. friend who's who grew up in Hong Kong hears, hears it in Cantonese or anything. Right. Yeah. So you, you called your book God Loves the Autistic Mind. I mean, obviously... God loves everybody, God create everybody, but what do you mean when you say God loves the autistic mind? Well, I think in that sense, it's to see how it is something from God's love. It is a positive thing. We can see, we do see negatives. We do see our disabilities, but not to see it all as just, oh my goodness, it's horrible and it's all the end, but to really see the positive in autism, see the positive in God's gift to us, to see it all in that kind of grace and all his gift Mm -hmm. uh, from God in that sense as well. so yeah. uh, my, my original title was God looks on the autistic mind with love. Uh, but then uh, the daughters of St. Paul were like, Hey, we can just shorten this and it yeah, sounds better. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm like, <laughs> and, and I'm like, yep, that makes sense. That, that does make sense. Yeah. Cause that was, I had a slightly longer title that has expressed a similar idea in that sense, because God is looking on our mind. God is, is, is peering on our mind and he's always looking with love because God is love, right? right. Uh, first John three, God is right. love. And, and so, and so those those kind of perspectives are important in our lives in that sense, like God, the love of God in our lives to really, to really understand it and to see it in all aspects of who we are, and not just to say like, oh, God just loves me if I fake to be mm. the type of person I think God, we, I God would want to love instead of right. God loves me for who I am. God loves me in in, in my fullness. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think that's like a very universal lesson that you know, like God, God's plan for us isn't just to be typical or to be normal. Like God's plan is actually very unique for each person. Um, he's not trying to put us into boxes. We're trying to put ourselves into boxes most often. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I think God adapts to each person in, in understanding how they are and understanding where they are in taking their own perspective in that regard. Because I, I do think that we can too often be too much like putting people into boxes. You're right. So, yeah. yeah. I noticed that you had something on your website about like, I, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but something like along lines of like autistic friendly churches or, or something like that. What does that mean? So the idea is 
uh, sensory friendly masses. So one of the challenges with autism is that we tend to have less filters or different filters between the sense experience and our conscious mind between. Mm-hmm. And, and so that that makes it so that a lot of times certain senses can overwhelm us. It just seems normal for other people. Okay. I have it to an extent, but not nearly as significantly as a lot of others. Like I, as soon as I step outside, I put on sunglasses. Like I can't be outside for that really? long without sunglasses yeah. or I'll get, get like, I feel overwhelmed, feel a headache. Even when it's a day that, most people aren't wearing sunglasses. I'll be there yeah. wearing sunglasses, but that's a very minor one. A lot of autistic sure. people are much more have much more uh, trouble with with sensory sensory input, and so the idea would be to have either the whole church or like kind of a reverse cry room. Take one of the cry rooms and change it so the the lights are down, so mm-hmm. the and the volume on 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 everything is down, and things like that, so that it's more adapted for those autistics who have struggle to make it to mass because of that sensory experience because a lot will have like like very much darker spaces much quieter spaces and then having that and having uh, it can be a huge help for autistic people who otherwise have trouble so that they can make it to mass because we need to be able to help everyone make it to mass uh, every sunday so yeah would you say the same thing goes for like using incense or having a choir or other other senses that get you know stimulated at mass oh yeah i would assume that those masses would not use incense yeah uh, i know some of them will have a small choir it just depends i know like the one one i one i was one i participated in i celebrated the mass from once when i was in, in the city uh and they have a kind of uh they have like one guy with a piano who plays the piano but not they have like with not that loudly he plays the piano and he sings the same songs every Sunday. So because mm. for a lot of autistic people, it's all along with the sensory issues, there's the executive functioning issues, which are kind of how we schedule and organize our lives. And, and so if you have the same songs every Sunday, that can help out a lot of autistic people. So they would have, mm. they had like some pretty, pretty normal Catholic hymns, but they would use the same opening hymn, the same closing hymn, the same Eucharistic hymn, same offertory hymn every Sunday. Yeah, uh, and which was a, which is not the standard for most parishes. Most parishes right. have you know a collection of like twenty five, thirty that they use regularly. So because you don't want to use like a totally new one every Sunday, because then the congregation won't know it. But at the same sure. time, most like to have more variety than the same one every week. Yeah, and are these churches that are uh, like explicitly trying to create a mass experience for autistic persons, or are they just so happen to be kind of like a lo fi mass experience? So. Most of the ones that I list there on my website in the sensory friendly mass directory are explicitly trying to do it for autistic okay. people. A few are mentioned that are that are really not trying to, but are really good. I don't remember if I mentioned them explicitly or just put them in there. There are other ones that can be like that. Like if you go to the low mass for an extraordinary form, right, yeah. uh, or if you go a lot of parishes, if you go at like the 7 a.m. or 7.30 a.m. first in the morning mass, that mass tends to be, you know, not as much noise, not a song, right, you know, right. the song, very minimal songs. It's very much. And, 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 and if there isn't one near you, I often recommend looking for those type of masses because those are, those are the ones that, that are generally offered at some neighborhood, neighboring parish to you that are also, uh, that are also, um, that are also helpful in that regard that, uh, you know, that they aren't, they aren't a sensory overload because sometimes even just being, a 40 minute mass rather than a 55 minute mass mm-hmm. 
how long you're in the, that sensory environment, even if the senses are the same, you might be able to last 40 minutes a whole lot easier than you can mm -hmm. last 55 minutes. That makes sense. So yeah. very cool. Cool. Well, I want to wrap this up, but real quick, I want to ask you about your, your, your Twitter persona. Um, first of all, you're very brave in some sense. I don't know. I, maybe you're brave. Maybe you're foolish for spending time on Twitter because it's kind of the devil's den in a sense. Um, especially, you know, unfortunately Catholic Twitter can kind of erupt in chaos from time yeah. to time. Well, I mean, it's, it's the, the, one of the challenges that we have with, uh, with any kind of social media is the effect where the extremes get emphasized. And yeah, there's a really good video yeah. by Tom Scott, who's a YouTuber. He, he did a, he did a presentation at the uh, national academies or something like that. Royal, Royal institutions. That's what it is. Cause it's British. Uh -huh. has to be Royal. There you go. Right. Uh, anyways, the British, the Royal institutions. And he talked about how, like, if you, if you like, let's say you want to start exercising a little more, you're like, Hey, you look on how to run a 5k, which, you know, is a reasonable thing. I think almost anybody, uh, you know, could train in a few months to run in a month or two to run a 5k. It's not like, it's not the most extreme thing, right? but then just following the, the rec the first recommended video, a few videos down, he's getting how to run ultra marathons and mm. like running an ultra marathon is a whole other level of extreme. Right. And it's yeah. the same thing with, with politics or with the church too, where it's like, the most the most extreme voices get amplified, whether it's, you know, the 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 kind of I'm the Sede Vacantist who right. doesn't even believe that like that we've had any valid popes since like right. I think Paul the Paul the John the twenty third or Pius the twelfth yeah, something. And then and then like the one who's like, Yes, I uh, you know, and then something like, you know, Catholics for choice, which is like right. you know, like we're, we're Catholic, but like let's promote abortion to like all nine months in the most extreme ways. And, and so those kind of like extremes get amplified <laughs> to yeah. a degree. That's just like that by the nature of, of, of the medium. And I think for myself, it's always a, a, an intention to be co conscious of that and to be aware of that and to say, okay, present Catholic teaching, you know, write down kind of write down the middle in that sense where, yeah. you know, uh, one of my, before I had my, uh, before I had my, uh, right now my banner is just a, a book promo for my book. Mm -hmm. But before that, my banner was a picture of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis saying, you know, like, I love all three popes, and right. I think all three popes are, are good. <laughs> yeah. <things>. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that is actually what makes you like a refreshing voice online is because you are able to, like, express things with nuance and you're able to say, okay, well, well this thing, you know, on the left is, is, is bad. This thing on the right is bad. You're, this thing on the left is good. This thing on the right is good. And, and like, you don't fall into that just like partisan. Um, I don't know. Like it's, it's almost, I don't want to say cultish is too strong of a word, but like, it's maybe the echo chamber, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely think that, uh, that, that, that we can, that there's definitely echo chambers at, on social media. And that could be a huge challenge, whatever, whatever that echo chamber is, because those echo chambers can, can lead us to things where, you know, you only hear people with that perspective. You don't realize that, you know, whatever that perspective is, it might be, there's only, you know, 5% of people in the country yeah. who actually agree with that perspective and 75% <laughs> right. strongly disagree with that perspective right? Uh, or whatever it is. I don't know the exact, the, 
that you can get into a whole, I can think of like a dozen examples off the top of my head, but right. I didn't want to get into like critiquing like one or the other beyond sure. saying like the, the extremes of the, 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 the very extremes of like a Catholic perspective in that sense. So, right. But yeah, I mean, I think it's good to, I think every person should try to follow news sources or media personalities who are kind of on both sides of the aisle, you know. I that's what I try to do. I try to follow some people who are a little more left, a little more right. You know, I think it's good. Yeah, no, read. definitely. I think I think uh, there's there's even things that are started out with like, uh, you know, where they try and look at your perspective. Uh, like there's apps like Ground News where now it's trying to show it will show you the news story and then it will show you the headlines on like the right, left, and center. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, perspectives on it right. on the same news story, which is interesting to see how the different perspectives also show you. Ground News also shows like what percent of the the articles about this were from like what they consider left, right, and center, uh, you know, publications, and and I think people can disagree sometimes. Sometimes it's like, okay, is this one like center left or right, right, right. extreme left or center? And those type of things, I think you can disagree with, but I do think the idea of I've seen the same story with different headlines from, you know, from say like, you know, say like the Daily Wire and uh the new republic or something like that yeah. you know it's like okay i understand the different i understand right. how the, <laughs> the people on the left and right are seeing the same the same story of joe biden joe biden's latest action or whatever right right <laughs> which is i mean the same thing with like pope francis i mean i've noticed that there's like two opposing catholic websites you know and one is called like you know, uh, where Peter is, which is like the, the pro Pope France. And the other one is called, it's a, it's a similar name. Like, um, what is it? You know what I'm talking about? It's like very, it's uh, very far right. It's, it's a very similar yeah, name. Well, I don't know. I can't think of one that's exactly the same. One, one Peter like five. One, that's what it is. One Peter, one Peter five. five. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there, there's differences in that regard. And I think a lot of times it's like, um, there, there, uh, there are, there are things that are, that are difficult. And I think, I think a lot of it, I've, I've written a number of articles. Some of my most popular articles in the last few, few years have been just clarifying points on Pope Francis that yeah. get, I think sometimes, unfortunately things, some things get lost in the translation. I like, think so too. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like one of the things here is that Pope Francis had said, you know, basically like he said, don't proselytize when mm -hmm. in, in Spanish and Italian proselytism has a much more negative connotation of kind of like, pushing the faith or like kind of tricking the person into the faith. And, and, and then, and then if you read the whole speech, he's saying like, share the faith with people by your example, by right. and things like that. So he's not saying like, don't, don't evangelize saying don't proselytize, but in English proselytism and evangelization are almost synonymous. Whereas like the, yeah. the connotation in, in Spanish and Italian is very different. So his, his meaning is very clear to a native Spanish or Italian speaker, but not so much in English. So like, yeah. and, and things like that were, were like, I, part of my background, like, so I did three years in Italy studying, studying theology. All my classes were in Italian. And then in my community, because we were founded in uh, Mexico and we're, uh, we're, we're very big in Spain and Latin America, our official language for in, inside the community internationally is Spanish. So all of us have to learn you know, at least okay. pretty basic, at least, you know, acceptable Spanish. Like if, if the general director, the kind of lead, the one in charge of the whole legion, if he writes a letter to everybody and, it, or to, just to all the priests, it's, it's going to be in Spanish. There won't be a translation because like you've 
become you've been ordained a priest in this community, yeah, you're expected yeah. to know enough Spanish to understand that letter, right? right. Uh, and it's interesting. Right now, our, our general director is actually from Maryland, so oh wow, <laughs> so he's uh, so he writes in English, yeah, or so. does he have to write in Spanish? Yeah, well, I, I I I noted to him the first time he was doing some videos for, sent out to Leisure and said, and I and I said you're doing a lot better in the first like by the second or third like after a few months because when he first sent it out I'm like he's sounding very very much like I would sound if I speak Spanish. Oh, funny. <laughs> where, where you can kind of you can kind of get that it's not his first language. He's kind of you can understand it, but it's not smooth. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like if I speak Spanish, I don't come out as nearly as smoothly as English. Like I can speak Spanish, I can give a homily in Spanish, but you know, and I'll probably make some minor grammatical error over the seven minutes of the homily. Not nothing that's like super bad, but some minor issue. And he sounded a lot like that when he was first talking in Spanish, but then after a year, I I said, "I'd say you've improved a lot better oh, because wow. now you don't you sound you don't sound like I would if I was speaking Spanish <laughs> because, yeah. because you know like." Yeah, you know, like because I know that my Spanish is very much. I have a very strong what they would call a gringo accent, and mm-hmm. and with that, I'm not very. Uh, and 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 I have, and I and I'm not super smooth in Spanish. I mean, I can read Spanish. I part of like I said, I was working behind the scenes for a community. Part of it was like going through all the Spanish language news sites and finding good stories to translate and put on our English language news site, you know, like, Oh, these leaders ran this great retreat for kids in Mexico or, yeah. you know, did this, they were, they were on Spanish TV talking about this or something. And, yeah. and for part of my, part of my responsibility uh, was I would look through all those and translate a few months to put on our English uh, language news site to say, Hey, here's what leaders are doing around the world. So, yeah. So I do have a, I do have a reasonably decent Spanish, but I know that if I speak it, it comes out kind of awkward like that. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last question, just because we were, were talking about Twitter at the end and like just the kind of public discourse, the extremes. What's your take on um, Elon Musk purchasing Twitter? Do you think that's a good thing, bad thing? I think I think it's yet to be seen. Okay. I don't know. Like I think I think it's hard to tell because there are some things that could be good, some are some things that could be bad. Uh, I'm currently kind of of the let's wait and see camp yeah. on that issue because obviously, you know, we do know we do know Elon Musk tendencies. Uh, one of the things is that now it's like one of the biggest things now is like oh he's going to charge eight months, yeah, eight dollars a month if you want to yeah. keep your if you want to keep your verified verified. Uh, Twitter handle like the blue check mark. Right. I have one, and I was joking. Well, and I sent out a tweet where I saw. It, I said, "I guess I'm losing this because I don't think you know <laughs> yeah, somebody who lives in right. poverty. I don't right. think it's worth a hundred dollars a year, <laughs> right? Like to, to spend just for that. Now, you know, if maybe you know other people, I could totally understand. I know a few people who are, you know, was working in DC who are kind of low level reporters for for different news sites in the DC area, and the fact that they're that they have that verification probably when they have to contact bigger newsmakers, mm. it's worth the hundred dollars a year because then all of a sudden they're contacting some congressperson or somebody else. And it's like, okay, this is legitimate. This guy's a legitimate reporter. Right, I don't right. know his name because he's like a low level one. He's not the one who appears on, you know, on the, on the TV every night. Uh, but he's a legitimate reporter for this, for this uh, publication. Right. And so for them, I can imagine the company's just going to, those companies, those news publications are just going to eat that for all right, their employees. You know, it's sure. like, okay, we're just, it's a hundred dollars an employee to use the service right now. And 
that's worth it for us. But right. I don't know about people like me where I'm like, I have a vow of poverty. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't see, I'm not sure about the value. Maybe it will be worth the value. Maybe we'll have other features too. We'll see. But right. at least for now, I'm that I'm not. And, and there's other aspects that are like to see how it is with, with moderation yeah. because, because I think you have to, you have to have a balance in moderation because you know, sure, you can say, okay, this person said something bad, we're going to ban them, but be consistent, you know, like, yeah. you have all these, you have all kinds of, you know, Russian state media, or things like justifying the Uyghur genocide in China, right. and they don't get banned. Exactly. And then, and, and, you know, and, and, and I'm like, whatever kind of level you want to have, like, this is unacceptable speech, be a little more consistent in it. I don't know if he will do that, that but that, right. I think that there is a kind of a need for a consistency there, whatever it is, you know, right, like, right. The, you know, in that sense, because it's like, you can't say like, oh, we're banning this person because they, they said something. And then like, you have the other Tola Khomeini, the head of exactly, Iran saying something yeah. like five times worse. And he right, doesn't get banned. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like be consistent. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I and and I mean I do like the idea of like having a like to be banned for life is like kind of extreme, you know. So I like the idea that maybe there's maybe you're in I don't know, maybe you get in Twitter jail, but maybe you have a a path where you can you can come back. It's not like, you know, and and cuz people have also gotten banned for ridiculous things. I mean, we don't have time to get into all of this, but you know, people have gotten banned for saying basic biological facts about gender. Oh yeah. No, like, I, I mean, there, there's these issues there. I mean, it's like, why are you betting that? And then like the Ayatollah Khomeini says like, kill, right. the, kill all Americans and it's, right. like, it's fine. You know, like, I, I mean, that's like, you have to be consistent in that regard. Uh, you, you can have different, different sites can have different degrees of moderation. Sure. And, I, and I'm not saying that like, I'm a hundred century, which is the best degree, but I do think that there needs to be a consistency in whatever degree you choose to, to implement in that regard, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, we, we went all over the map, um, but for people who want to follow you, your writing and, and you on Twitter, where can they find you? So I have two social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter, FR Matthew LC, which is general Catholic stuff, and then Autistic Priest, uh, which is more autism-related stuff. So those you can find those anywhere, frmatthewlc.com as well, and on yeah, Instagram, and then on Tumblr even. Uh, although the Tumblr is just an automatic post from other ones. Okay. I basically, whatever <laughs> social media exists, I go out and reserve yeah. FR Matthew LC so somebody doesn't spoof me on there. But nice. some are different degrees of active i'm usually active on facebook and twitter most awesome awesome good well this has been great and i i wish you a lot of success with the with your new book okay thank you very much it seems to be doing pretty well so we'll see we'll <laughs> hope for continued success god yeah. bless no yeah i want to well i i my mom works um in in a high school and she works with the students who have any kind of learning accommodation and i'm in a recommend her to get a couple copies like because she works with students with autism and I think and it's a Catholic school and I just think that'd be a, a great resource for them you know oh yeah definitely I I am I think it's it's a great thing in that sense so there's uh yeah there's like 37 global reviews on Amazon here with like 89% giving five stars nice. so it's pretty that's a pretty strong review yeah thing, so awesome all right well thank you again so much god bless